0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Anna here. Thanks for tuning in. This episode was recorded between Emily and myself in early May and it is such a joy to bring it to you now. Postpartum rage and depression is something that can be very unexpected, particularly when it hasn't arisen with a second child and arrives with a subsequent one instead. This conversation covers that topic, so if it is something that is close to your heart or your experience right now or sensitive to you, please tread lightly. Our conversation also covers uh, the difference in social support or lack of across Australia and, and United States contexts, and we cover Emily's experience, or I suppose not really cover, but Get a little insight, brush the surface of her experience as a bilingual mother and Spanish speaker and Latina mother. The intersections of culture and race and motherhood are so important and fascinating to look at, and I hope you really enjoy this episode. If you are hot off the mark listening to this one as soon as it is released on the 25th of August, I'm letting you know that I do have a Transition to Two or More workshop coming up on the 26th in the afternoon, 4pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. You can access that by the link in the show notes here to the Transition to Two or More Tips article and then becoming a paid subscriber to my default parent project, Substack. Enjoy! and welcome to this episode
1: of the Anna Asks podcast. I am your host Anna Cusack and today I am speaking with Emily adler Mosquetha. She is a mother of two girls, a speech language pathologist and she is based in Oregon in the States. Hi Emily. Hello. Now the one thing that I didn't mention then, I'm sure there's lots I didn't mention, but one of the things that I didn't mention was that she's also the author of a recently published book, Unexpected, a Postpartum Memoir, which is available through Demeter Press. And I have had the pleasure of having it on my Kindle app here and reading through it, and I wanted to get you on to talk about a couple of topics in particular that we'll dig into in a little while. Before we do that, though, I do want to acknowledge that I am here on Aboriginal country, that where I am and all across the lands of the country now known of Australia always was and always will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land, and um, I also extend that yes. respect to the First Nations owners of the country, wherever you are listening, and also, Emily, where you are based as well.
2: Thank you. Yes, the Kalapuya people and the Grand Iran nations. Thank you so much.
1: Emily, I've given you a really brief introduction there. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about yourself and perhaps how this yeah, what's led you to the recording of this story in the first place?
2: I am was born in, in Eugene, Oregon, and um, I'm actually half Mexican and half European. My mother's from Minnesota and has European and Swedish background, and my dad's family is from central and northern Mexico, and I was... I grew up in a very white, historically racist town and navigated a a place where everybody was white and I assumed myself to also be white. My sisters adopted from Vietnam. And so I think really we were the most culturally diverse family in the whole city for many years. i never think I wanted to have kids or I, I wasn't really sure. And my partner and I, when we met, weren't really sure either. But as I worked in pediatrics, uh, serving families in my community um, as a speech language pathologist, I got exposure to families and kids. And I kind of think my biological clock turned on as I approached 30 and my husband and I decided to have kids, which took longer than we thought it would. So already there, kind of busting some myths that getting pregnant would happen fast and easy. And I really, as educated as I am, I didn't want any external input about what it would be like to be a mother. I didn't want kind of contamination of other people's experiences. Um, I was really convinced that I would know what to do and and be able to intuit what I needed to do. Um, My dad's comes from a large family. And so I'd also assumed that I would somehow have some magic powers or just, I really, I believe in like past lives. And so I also thought, well, I've done this before as a mother and as a person. And I was really, I was really channeling that and believing that would come true and come in to help me with raising a child. And yet it kind of proved to be that way with my first child. So it wasn't really until I had our second child that it was not as easy as it I had thought it would be.
1: And I think that's what's really interesting here, because a lot of people will get into this kind of, oh, well, not a lot of people, but sometimes there's this talk of, you know, the postpartum transformation and the tressence as part of this huge change that happens with the first, whereas for you, yes, there was that experience, but the real difficulty was actually with the subsequent child.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, what made it more challenging is that in the United States, there's already such piss poor support from others and families, but if you're a repeat parent, there's even less, so there's absolutely none. There's like negative support. They're, they're already assuming, oh, you've done this before. Good job. There's there's not even a baby shower for the second child. And therefore, there's not like, you know, supplies or even just the acknowledgement. It's just like, oh, you've done it once. Well, it's it's kind of old news. And I guess with that, I I really trusted, well, then I did know what I was doing. And that even in my pregnancy though, once I I think my actually feeling the uncomfortable feeling of being mad, um, which I before having kids never often got agitated or irritated that kind of persisted. And so those were new feelings, even in my pregnancy that stood out to me and actually let me know that I was pregnant because we didn't, we'd been trying to get pregnant the second time and for a good 10 months. And it wasn't until I started having kind of these what well, we were, you know, kind of mood swings or whatever. That I was like, wait a second, when am I supposed to get my period? And I'm kind of feeling really tired. And but it was starting to feel irritated with our two year old in a way that I hadn't before. My patience was waning, and that felt different. But I just think also, I just felt human finally, and I didn't. That was so unfamiliar because of how socialized I'd been to be, you know, a good girl, a good woman, and to do that, you only feel so many feelings
0: and mm, so i had only it.
2: the positive ones allowed right only the positive ones yeah or if i felt the negative ones it was very short lived and had some justification of my outburst seemingly irrational response there had to be some justification i couldn't just be pissed for pissed sake um <laughs> i realized almost there was like a backlog of being frustrated with things or just allowing myself to be frustrated but i'd also never been so overwhelmed or feeling unsupported or more like mostly incapable. I learned things quickly. I'm good at things fast. And I wasn't, that wasn't happening. And so I, in in my mind, in my dichotomy, I was failing, even though I was learning, but I didn't, I hadn't allowed a lot of space for myself to have it be messy.
0: Mm,
1: And within that, within that kind of perspective, the social failing, which is the lack of support Translated into the personal feeling of failure. I'm not keeping up. I'm not doing this right. I'm not cut out for this. All of those things.
2: So, really, uh, there was no just space for learning. Like, Mm. kids don't get on a bike and just take off. They fall off a bunch of times and bust up their knee and bleed. And if they're courageous enough and have the support to get back on again, even though it was a hard fall, then they will learn how to ride the bike. But I fell off once and was just like, oh, nope. I must not know how to do that It's interesting you mentioned
1: that the anger was there in your pregnancy as well because we know that prenatal health is actually a really big indicator of your Mm postnatal health as well and anger was something big that then came up again as a big red flag for you in that second postpartum wasn't
2: it yeah and it really came up as I was more depleted so like six seven eight months I was Solo parenting more than I had anticipated. And because of the precedent I had set with my first child and with all the gatekeeping I had done with my husband with our first child, I had assumed way more responsibility thinking it was my maternal duty to do that, (laughs) but then had set myself up to feel really uncomfortable asking for help and support. That was reasonable requests, understandable requests with an infant and a three-year-old for three, four days Without my partner, but I, that didn't seem possible to me. So I, I was my capacity for that. I had to grow. I had to build my capacity. And in that growth, there was growing pains, which came out as frustration and anger and, and irritability. But because I had such judgment about those feelings, I would go in these shame and guilt spirals. Of I raised my voice. I got really frustrated, and you know, just through the kitchen towel really hard on the, on the counter, or, you know, there was, there was kind of one spike of, I was just kind of feeling so dis now that I know, dysregulated in my body that my three-year-old wanted to run across the room to me. And I didn't want to be touched. I didn't want to touch her. I didn't know how I would react if she came near me. And so I put my hand out and I said, mommy's not safe right now. And that freaked me out because I didn't know if I would essentially hit her because I was, I was just so dysregulated and unfamiliar with myself in that state that I didn't know what I would do if she came near me moments later I was feeling just flooded with shame and could kind of collapse to the ground and feel more like myself because I had just stopped she was kind of freaked out I was kind of freaked out but then in a good repair I was like you know she kind of crept closer and I'm like I'm so sorry I'm just so overwhelmed like I don't know what's going on you know uh, you know, do you want to hug? And she's like, yeah. And so we're hugging each other. And and so that was that was really scary from, in the sense of, I it was so unfamiliar and I hadn't let myself just ever be or feel. I was just so overwhelmed with all those feelings. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't. I'd never been in situations of being so dysregulated and knowing, I mean, here I worked in special education and we helped children who had, behavioral health issues and mental health issues or were autistic and, and, you know, had, you know, sensory integration disorders, but I had never had the education of a person's experience of being hyper, hypo aroused and have that really explained to me to understand what a window of tolerance was or or what I had no, I had no language or understanding of, of all of that, that I've later come to learn to realize, oh, wow, I was so, Tired and dysregulated and exhausted, that I was just tipped out of my very small window of tolerance. Of it was growing because I I didn't hadn't ever had had two kids before.
1: Mm. Yeah, and some of these terms that we're using now in this interview might be ones that you're not familiar with either, dear listener. So this concept of the window of tolerance, this kind of the idea. I'm not a psychologist to explain this to you very well, but the idea that if there's a window that's positioned like in the middle of the wall, that's in the state that you feel kind of relatively calm, in control, you can focus. If things come up, uh, you don't get completely overwhelmed or flattened by them. And then if you're up above that window of tolerance, you're hyper aroused. So you might be anxious or like you're already totally overwhelmed and just one last little thing can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And then down underneath that window, you hypo-aroused. So even when there's something that you really should be acting upon, you can't bring yourself to do it because you're so flat at that point. And from reading your story in your book, Emily, it sounds like you were in that hyper-aroused state over, under so much pressure and overwhelm from a combination of what you said before about your internal expectations, a lack of support in terms of socially and societally, in the States, people generally go back to work far earlier than in Australia as well. There's no paid maternity leave at all. So you were back. You were back at full time work at what? Three months postpartum?
2: Yeah. And that was generous because of my my work situation.
1: Yeah. So I'm here recording this with an almost six month old and people are asking me like, why am I working? What am I doing? In Australia, wow. it's a different situation. It's a so- different world. Yeah, yeah. You'd spent so much time in this heightened state that, mm-hmm. and all the anger spilling out and everything else, and then reached a breaking point where you actually tipped the other way, and you were so flattened, but also as part of that, completely unable to sleep,
2: mm-hmm. or it, it just wasn't well. Yeah, yeah. It would, I would just tip. I would just kind of like ping pong from like too high to then like too low, and then kind of come up and and find myself. But it was just. It was hard to stay in that zone of of feeling familiar or comfortable or, or recognizable. I guess what how as I was describing it, like it the, my my headspace didn't feel familiar to me is because I I was navigating that hyper aroused state, which was new territory, and a hypo aroused state, which I had had some history with. Which was also interesting to later learn that having a history of seasonal depression is a history of depression. There's such a stigma in the United States, I think, safe to say globally about mental health issues that I hadn't realized, nor maybe to share that with my care provider that I had had a history of seasonal depression because I didn't think seasonal depression equaled depression.
1: Yeah. Um, So that's something um, it can be referred to at least here as seasonal affective disorder, which basically mm -hmm, means that in winter, you feel as the days shorten, you feel your mood getting worse and worse and you can be really flat all through winter and dread winter coming and that then through summer, you're great again. And it just seems that the yep. weather is the precipitating factor. Although I have read recently about how is it really that or is it the expectation of Western society that we will push on regardless of the weather rather than recognizing mm. that this is the time that we should be going into not hibernation mode, but slowdown mode, cozy stuff, right. fire um yeah. being rubbed up if we had the pressure off during that time and really did make our hay while the sun shone in the summer mm-hmm. would this actually like be a mental down. health problem right like is right. it a mental health problem or is it a social expectation problem or is it a combination
2: and in the bio the biology i mean where i live near the 45th parallel people you know we take copious amounts of vitamin d like there is a deficit of mm. of essential vitamin vitamin that is an essential mineral for mental health. So I think it's a combination of things, but I, I do think you're onto something with it's yet another individual manifestation of a larger system problem of oppression and capitalism and white supremacy um, that is wanting to perpetuate this grind and or, and perfectionistic tendencies, which is um, also something I dealt with of You know, if I was a good student, then how could I be a good student as a mother? I couldn't quite have such flexibility. I learned flexible thinking about that and expectations. But yeah, those expectations were really inflexible back then. Mm -hmm.
1: And I appreciate that you've just mentioned the white supremacy as well. So I don't think anybody listening to this podcast is really going to be thinking of themselves as a white supremacist. But we all, whether we are aware of it or not, we're raised in a society where, um, where whiteness is, is the norm, is celebrated, and whiteness is associated with all those imperialistic, capitalistic, mm-hmm. high-achieving kind of, yeah, ideals prioritised over community and care and nurture.
2: And, and the, they're, in the, they're in the policies. They're in, yeah. in, in the United States. We have no paid leave. So yeah. We have dismal minimum wage. We have just... It's not a healthcare. living care. Healthcare is a mess. Yeah. Um, ed- our education system is one of the lowest in the world. It's the, the priority. Maternal
1: mortality bad. is atrocious. It's Black maternal atrocious. mortality
2: is far, yes. far
1: worse. Yeah.
2: It's it's embarrassing and it's um it's disturbing. And and the rates of maternal suicide in the United States, particularly from that six to twelve month mark, which was mm. when I was really, you know, starting to have my most depletion. That's the highest, when it's the highest, six to 12 months.
1: Yeah, that's a key time in Australia too, the first month and then six to 12 months. There was some research done in the last couple of years that showed rates of postnatal depression were actually highest when the eldest child was around four years old. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was because there was, you know, perhaps another child in the mix and all the pressure kind of piled on, but it seemed to be the case even when there was no other child in the mix either. So I think that's something that we could explore in greater detail as well.
2: Absolutely. There was a study that came out in 2020 that was saying a longitudinal study about postpartum depression that had tracked symptoms up to three years postpartum. Mm. So that really, it it affirmed to me that this postpartum time is way longer than a few months, way longer than maybe 12 months. I personally think it's so you're perimetopausal. It's like a phase that you're in. And and if you have multiple children, you stay in that phase with various mattresses and, and postpartum experiences, but you're still postpartum until you transition to not be fertile. But yeah, no, it's the expectations of of mothers in general in the US is unrealistic and not what it should be.
0: Yeah.
1: It's hard enough here a lot of the time. And then that is just so incredibly magnified in the yeah. States too. What I wanted to ask you about when we started speaking about our general ingrained addiction to whiteness, though, Mm -hmm. was your experience as a Mexican-American woman, a bilingual woman. You had to reclaim your language because you weren't raised as a bilingual person.
2: Because of white supremacy. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So would you mind touching on that experience of reclaiming your language and then how those sorts of, ideals is, as you said your dad came from a large family you've had in your speech language pathology practice you've had a lot of work in the pediatric space working with spanish-speaking families and how these kind of informed your expectations of how you should be as a mother and how you kind of compared yourself to that
2: yeah you know, I didn't grow up speaking spanish because my dad didn't he was physically punished by speaking Spanish when he went to school. His name was changed when he went to school. It was anglicized. His name is Rafael, and he first day of school, they called him Ralph. His twin sister's name is Margarita, they called her Margie. They just anglicized everybody's name, again, centering whiteness and what was easy. So I think from that very young age, my dad learned it's not, you know, it's not accepted. And and being acculturated was really about cultural erasure. So my dad also believed the myths that I would be confused, I would be slow in school, that being bilingual was a negative thing, which again is another negative trope of white supremacy that unfortunately is still prevalent in the United States even today. And so I didn't have a relationship with my paternal grandparents because of the language barrier. I coveted my cousins who could understand what people were saying in the cramped kitchen and and yet would reply in English. And I was always so confused, like, why why are you replying in English when you understand what they said in Spanish? And as I learned, started to learn Spanish in school as a sixth, seventh, eighth grader and into high school, I could have simple conversations with my grandparents. I could talk about the weather. I could say hello. I could do something, but I always wanted to become more proficient in Spanish to really have, be able to have a relationship with them. So I Studying abroad, I had hoped to go to Mexico to connect with my culture, and that wasn't a possibility. So the country I chose was Argentina. And it was interesting for how, how white presenting I am and white assumed that I am completely white. It was helpful being in a country with a lot of Italian and European immigrant people, because every most people in Argentina looked like me. People mistaked me you know, for being Argentinian which felt like the biggest compliment. And I was thrilled, (laughs) but also learning Spanish, Argentinian Spanish was, I felt I had access to emotion words that I had never had in English. There was gradients of saying you were nervous to being scared, to being angry, to being annoyed. Like there was all these other words that people used in their daily vernacular that I didn't experience in English. And so I also saw people, you know, had it modeled finally, of more expressive and more emotional living. And that felt really good to me. And I felt more alive. And so coming home, I I definitely felt like there was, Argentina was my kind of BCAD <laughs> marker in my life of a of, of really big, significant um, identity shifting. That's kind of when I started to, it was my Argentinian, German, Argentinian friends that turned me on to Mexican 90s rock music and bands. They were so confused that I was Mexican-American and had no idea about Mexican culture, really. And it was kind of embarrassing. But where I lived in the U.S., there was hardly any Mexican families that weren't, that were in my school. I think I've, I've been thinking back and I was the only girl with a Latina last name, I think until I got to high school and maybe there was one other female Latina. And then there was a few boys That I went to school with, but there was a handful of us. And it took me going back and realizing how kind of anglicized their last names had been that I hadn't even realized, oh my gosh, yeah, De La Cruz. He was, he's Latino, like all these people that I, um, I knew. So it was helpful to have that modeling and confirmation, because I think even if I'd gone to Mexico, I would have really stood out because of how fair I am. And that would have kind of distracted people from relating to me. Because there's been the families that I've worked with, some of the families when I've, I've talked to them on the phone in Spanish and some one I remember one time I'd, I'd made an assessment meeting appointment with a family and they came to my office, which I typically go to their homes at that time, but they came to my office and I greeted them at the door. And the woman, I could tell she recognized my voice, but she was finally seeing me for the first time. And she looked at me, really confused look. And she goes, you don't look Latina. I just said, well, we also can look like this. <laughs> So there's colorism across all communities and there's, 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 their own racism in all communities, but I did appreciate having a language, even though I had a different dialect that I could talk to my grandparents, that I could connect with them. And that was really meaningful.
1: Yeah. To bridge, to bridge that gap with your family is, it felt like a superpower coming back and being able to actually be part of the conversations in the kitchen.
2: Absolutely. And then also, there's a scene in my book that I talk about my parents came to visit me and my dad are, and I are calling my grandparents. And my dad's got a lot of feelings that he he feels that he didn't have any modeling or words to describe. And so sometimes they just, you know, leak out of him, which I think is, is beautiful. And he was getting emotional, like, I think just in his awe of, wow, you did this, you became bilingual. And here I had held him on a pedestal. He spoke Spanish. And in that visit, I realized his Spanish was different than my Spanish. I had very educated Spanish and I had a wider vocabulary than he did. And that was really startling to me from not speaking Spanish to having my dad, quote unquote, speak Spanish. He did and he knew everything, but I didn't realize in my journey to learn Spanish that I had, had surpassed him. I knew how to read in Spanish. It's just recently that my oldest daughter Corazones taught her grandfather how to read in Spanish because he was never taught how my, my grandmother finished eighth grade and my grandfather, I think didn't have a lot of opportunities to go to school. And my dad struggled in school. So anyways, it's just, it's been a really healing journey, having kids and raising them bilingual to have my dad learn more vocabulary, learn new words. We look up words together. It's been a real reclaiming most certainly for me to speak Spanish and even though Spanish is the is the colonizer's language for, for the Americas, it feels closer to a part of myself that, you know, I may not look like my extended family or look like my dad even. My dad's really dark. And so at least we have this language. Though once I could actually fluently speak Spanish, my dad and I did not switch and speak Spanish to each other because that wasn't our language. We did start kind of mixing or sharing some words here and there, or sometimes... Having a bi- more bilingual brain now, I, I can't think of some words in English. And so I will, I will just use the Spanish word that I can think of. But it it has been really great to see him speak Spanish with our girls and particularly with our youngest, because when I got pregnant with her, our oldest corazón was two. And I had almost strictly spoken Spanish to her up until that point. Because it wasn't my native language, the cognitive load on top of being pregnant was I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I essentially stopped speaking Spanish and that's when Corazon's English took off and she would tell me, I don't want to speak Spanish and would respond would respond in English. And, but her little sister never had an interruption like that. And so she's what's called a simultaneous bilingual, whereas Corazon is a sequential bilingual. She kind of learned one language and then another. So it's been interesting, whereas it's, it's easier for our, our to just go into Spanish or in and out of Spanish and English with my youngest. And it's more of an effort for me and my oldest to go in and out of Spanish.
1: That's so interesting and I actually really appreciate that you've mentioned that the load was just too much in pregnancy and you had you had to revert to English just to be able I to couldn't. get through because I think we all do steps. We all do things like that, you know, when there are times of pressure and that can be while, you know, when there's another baby on the way or the another has arrived or it could be something to do with work or a family situation or whatever. There are times that we just have to take the pressure off ourselves, even when it's something that we're really ideologically connected to and passionate about. Sometimes you have to go gently and it doesn't mean that it's stopped and finished forever or that your relationship has been jeopardized in any way. Like, as you say, she's just a different type of bilingual. Right. She's still bilingual.
2: Right. And it's helpful for for myself too of knowing that there will be seasons or that I kind of got them. We spoke Spanish enough at home when they were learning language that now they go to a dual immersion school. And that kind of the infrastructure of the school is helping me because being in an all English speaking community with very few Spanish opportunities and experiences to give my children. It's a it was a big load to do by myself. Even though Spanish is like the second most known language in the area, it was still very hard. But working with Spanish-speaking mothers and families with my job was really really helped keep up my Spanish, really helped me feel connected to my identity and also had me kind of healing and kind of giving back to the, maybe the types of families that my parents that my grandparents and my dad knew as a child. I know that my dad grew up really poor and many of these families that I was working with were below the, you know, the poverty line or or you know engaged in in really multiple jobs and trying to trying to make it financially and and then also their children had these diagnosed communication delays. And so I was naive, I was young to think that I, that I didn't represent the man or didn't represent the system. I think I was also naive to think that I, that I wanted their life in a way, but I think what I wanted was their sense of or what they presented as a sense of contentment with their responsibility of being a mother. So you're saying that when you went to visit families
1: in your book, you describe how it just seemed like the mothers were just doing it easily and happy in motherhood. And they might've had kids all spread around different areas of the flat or the trailer or, you know, in next door with someone else. And it just, it all just seemed to flow easily. But perhaps you're thinking that they were almost presenting a front to you because you were part of a health system that, that could present a danger to them is that what you're Yeah, absolutely. Suggesting. I mean,
2: I mean, um, yeah, I mean, my my profession, we're trained what's called uh obligated reporters. So we're we're designated by the child welfare system to make reports of suspected or actual child neglect and maltreatment. And maybe to these individuals, they you know, we never asked immigration status, but they might also have been concerned that we would. Not that we would, but that we would have a relationship or would report them to immigration. And if other, you know, other Latino and Latinos had seen me as white, they may not have like, yeah, she's speaking Spanish, but they, until I told my story, they may not have kind of at face value taken me as someone who was of the community. But I... My privilege blinded me to their reality of their experience of poverty, their experience of potentially living on food stamps, their experience of being relegated to or choices or options of housing um, because of their immigration status or because of their financial situation. So I, I think I just got distracted by by their by, you know, my job of like helping the child and the mother. I was really just my my focus was so narrow. That I, and I think part of my narrow focus was my privilege of my education, of my proximity and and belonging to also the white community. and But I remember sitting in this woman's living room with her son who had multiple areas of delay and something, my whole body just wanted what she had. My whole body wanted a child. My whole body wanted to be that mother sitting there watching her child. Be, there was a physical therapist there and a speech therapist there, but my, I didn't logically equate what that meant and the stress of why they, why we would be there. And I kind of have made that mean that that was like my biological clock of, wow, I really just want to be pregnant. I really want to, it just seems so irrational and illogical that I would want this the way I wanted it. And then my dad's had a lot of sisters and my mother, grandmother had a lot of babies and I Also similarly just conflated that and made that mean a bunch of things that if I had really looked at it, that was completely wrong. (laughs) That I don't know that my grandparents talked about getting pregnant again. I don't know that those were all planned pregnancies. I mean, those were more hands to work in the field to earn money for the family as maybe a justification of being pregnant again. I don't know how accessible birth control was or what my grandmother thought of reproductive care. I know she wasn't Catholic, but she was Christian and yeah, I don't know what what maybe that community was communicating or what it was. it was accessible to her. So I, trying to make sense of the world and make sense of what I thought being a mother was, I was just kind of picking and choosing what I thought was right and what was presented to me because I otherwise had no experience with kids and babies. I didn't have a sibling who had children. I didn't have my friends weren't having kids. I was really in this, uh, I was really just not exposed to kids other than children with disabilities and their families as as exemplars or as exemplars of what what families looked like or um, things like that
1: Mm, and even without direct contact with other mothers in a family or social setting in that time of your life you've still gathered this image of what a good mother should be Mm -hmm. and the good motherhood rules are very similar across australian and united states and western world and european kind of contexts um they're surprisingly similar across other nations as well in some areas that have kind of a westernized or a western influence and if you don't know what we're speaking about here do go back to way way back to season one i think it's episode 24 i interview dr sophie brock who is a sociologist about on motherhood studies and we'd speak at great length about what the conception of a good mother is and, and how we rate ourselves against that. And then we, in listening to your story, Emily, it's it's this extra layer of not only did you have the general good motherhood rules, but you had the good Latina motherhood rules mm-hmm. as well and thinking that, yes, this this idea that everything will just come naturally is is a part of that. And when it didn't, second time around at least, it all really hit the fan.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was so dysregulated and so kind of confused and surprised and just stuck. I felt really stuck and not knowing how to do it and how to do it all like I had supposedly been able to do or just been told. I mean, I just felt like I was, it was like this bait and switch. Like society had told me that, you know, mom's bum mom is back. They're superheroes, you know, super mom. And I was calling bullshit. I was like, um, "No, this is not possible." And I'm my body and my mind and my 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 feelings towards life are deteriorating. And it was really just kind of getting that negative voice out of my head, that internalized societal mega- megaphone of that was critiquing every little move I made that when I did that, then I could finally get space and put society, keep society out my, outside my front door and just take up space in my home of like, okay, I'm, we're going to make the rules in here. And if I don't want to follow my bedtime routine tonight, then we're not going to follow the bedtime routine tonight. People are going to eventually get to bed and I'm not going to be so frustrated because mostly as I was frustrated at myself that I wasn't keeping up with what I said I would do because what society said was the kids need routine. It's Like, well, Yes. of the time, that's great. If you can do that, but like 30% of the time, or even less than that, there's like, you can be give provide quality parenting 30% of the time you're, you know, you're doing great. Well, 30% was more like 70% for me. And I even doing it just 70% of good enough felt like I was failing, but I had to just let myself be okay with, be okay with disappointing society. And then I started to realize, well, who, who's even actually noticing that I'm doing this a certain way? And are your children suffering and doing it that way? No, not at all. Right. So me getting all flustered because I, you know, we're ten minutes late or twenty minutes late on starting bedtime. Like, who's like, like, just drop the clock. You're gonna, everyone's gonna get to bed. Stay, stay regulated stay present instead of jumping to the future of I'm already late it's like well but we're in right now which I think is another just being socialized in a white centered society of punctuality is valued mm, because an issue with bedtime now means that in this kind of mindset is an issue with
1: the night is an issue with waking up with time to get ready with how much sleep you're going to have mm-hmm. with how yep. you're going to arrive at work having dropped two kids off and done all of the everything else it all flows on and then goes back to being a good productive citizen for the capitalist machine no like no and I know that you said you know it took taking down that that megaphone in your head but which sounds so easy but it's actually really hard and it took a really long time like you've been healing for months and years now to be having this conversation with me. And there will be people who will listen and think like, yeah, but she sounds so well. And I feel so, so terrible. How long is it? Do you think since you hit what your rock bottom point was, how many years is that for you now?
2: It was five years ago this week that I was my first week that I had, I took a leave of absence from work. I, I told work for the first time I put myself first. I'm like, I can't come back to work. They thought I wanted a long weekend. I'm like, no, I'm I'm not coming back for like a few weeks. And they were like, do you really need to do that? Can you just come back? I'm like, no, I am coming back in a few weeks. I'm going to take, I'm going to go into debt with my sick leave that I have. I have the, the privilege of having a job that has provided sick leave and I'm going to use it because I have a lot of it. And if I go into debt with it, well then whatever, I'll just, I won't have, anyway, I didn't care for the first time. I didn't care. And I, yeah, so it was five years ago that I made that choice, which felt so huge to center myself for the first time over my job because I would think about the families that I'm serving and they're not going to be served, and you know who's going to who's going to be able to to provide their services in Spanish? There's only me and one other speech language pathologist who speaks Spanish in the whole county. And for the first time, I I I wasn't thinking about that. I was like, no, I need to do this for my own wellness and for my kids and for the quality of my marriage, um, but mostly for myself, which seemed so counter to the messaging that self care is selfish. And I, that was, that was kind of my first kind of revolutionary act of like, no, I'm choosing myself because of all the things that I want to do and all the people I do want to serve. I need my oxygen mask. This is me taking a break to take some oxygen.
1: Mm, Because the other option there is that you push through for an extra two or three weeks and did yourself serious, irreversible damage.
2: Oh, I mean, I was nodding off driving. I was, yeah. fa- I was falling asleep driving. I was so tired. I mean, I could have been in an accident. I could have, you know, injured somebody with my car, myself. I mean, I was already, my body was already showing signs that I was very depleted and very tired. But even in taking that rest or that pause to rest, I still kind of, that was all of May and June and July. And even into August, so like almost another four months, were really like really up and down. I would really hit some dark places of feeling like my recovery or my improvement wasn't fast enough, wasn't holding or whatever. So I had really had to be patient with myself. And then to, to the surprise of my family, I went back to work in July. And I was changing jobs. I was well enough to kind of just finish for a couple more weeks. I really wanted to finish up some relationships with families that I had had instead of just completely severing and just leaving. But a surprise to my parents, my surprise, my mom, my sister, that I was able to do that or that I wanted to do that. But I think that was my just kind of personal ethics that kind of came in and I was maybe resourced just enough for knowing that it was just a little bit of time until I made a big shift in my professional responsibilities.
1: And even that tells us within that, that you know, recovery isn't linear. Mm-hmm. The things that feel the best and most supportive for you may not be the most obvious option at face value, like the most obvious option there for you would have been to continue just to just to walk away from that job and start the new one a few weeks later. But that didn't sit right within mm-hmm. you and you had to yeah. decide that for yourself rather than for someone else's business or department perspective or you know, you had to follow what was right for you. And, and I think you tell your story really beautifully in your book about all of the lengths and, and details that you went through for healing during that early period and how that has continued onwards. And if anyone has been listening to this and and nodding along or feeling resonance with their own story or wanting some hope for where their recovery might lead to, I would really encourage you to get a copy of Emily's book. It's called Unexpected, A Postpartum Memoir. Is there anything else that you would like to leave us with, Emily? Any words that you have that you would like to share? A little key message or a nugget of wisdom, something that you feel needs to be said before we wrap up.
2: I think in the moments that you don't recognize yourself because of how mad you've been or how just shitty you feel, that that spark of goodness that's in you is still there. I just, I, I got my ear pierced during that time for a second time in my earlobe, because I really wanted a like, I'd never wanted a piercing or a tattoo, but I, all of a sudden I was like, no, I need, I need to remind myself and have this thing that I can touch or this, this real permanent change that like my spark didn't go out. And so like your spark is still there of your goodness and your divinity, even if it feels like it's just a flicker. And that with support and with maybe a lot of education and learning and, and so counseling and again just support or community that it will get different and it might feel better but it will shift the hard places will shift and and you will go
1: forward Mm, and look back on this time with compassion Mm -hmm. yeah yeah thank you so much emily it has been a pleasure speaking with you today thank you so much for this opportunity thank you
0: thanks so much for listening. Check out the show notes to the link to Emily's book and my workshop and all the other ways you can get in contact with us. If you'd like to share this episode or leave us a review, that would be awesome too. Until next time, bye.